Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. It's not an agency, but it works to transfer vital technology developments out of federal laboratories and into the market. The Federal Lab Consortium encompasses some 300 federal organizations. For an update on 50 years, we turn to the executive director, Paul Zielinski. Paul, good to have you with us. Hi, thank you very much for having me. Appreciate the opportunity to be here. And the chair of the consortium, Dr. Whitney Hastings. Dr. Hastings, good to have you with us. Great to be here. Thanks for asking us to come today. And, you know, I didn't realize that it's been 50 years of technology transfer. Sometimes we tend to think that all technology was invented last week in Silicon Valley. But, in fact, this has been a technologically fertile country for centuries. And maybe just uh, tell us how the consortium, because everyone's got a day job except, Paul, you're the only full-time person there at their agencies, in your case, Dr. Hastings, the National Cancer Institute. Tell us about the 50th year here. Yeah, well, this is exciting. Five decades of progress carrying out our mission of promoting tech transfer, educating tech transfer professionals, and and facilitating the partnerships between the federal labs and companies and bringing technologies to the marketplace. Uh, So it's exciting. We're going to celebrate this at our national meeting in April. So that's super excited. It's an annual gathering where we're going to have hundreds of tech transfer professionals all in one place in Dallas, Texas. This conference is a big event for us, and so we've got lots planned to celebrate these 50 years. If you'll go to our website, you'll see a timeline. The past five decades of tech transfer, we'll also have it at our meeting for folks to check out and see all the great things that we've done over the past 50 years. And Paul, of course, the recipient of tech transfer is the marketplace, companies, corporations, and so forth. And would you say that the consortium's main role is maybe unifying the way agencies do this so that it looks cogent to the external people that are the recipients of the transfer, that it's not wildly different from the National Cancer Institute to, you know, some lab somewhere out in, say, the Pacific Northwest National Laboratory. Sure. And that's exactly the point of the consortium. I mean, when you get down to when we talk about technology transfer, you know, you invest your tax dollars in research and development performed by the government, all the different labs and the agencies, they're working on their mission. But, you know, our government doesn't make stuff. You don't buy something from the government, you buy something from a company. So for that research to reach you as a person that paid for it, it has to get transferred. So we transfer it to a company, they make, sell, distribute that material, something you can buy, a service you can use, Uh, So there's lots of great and exciting examples of tech transfer, but that's really the heart of it. And like you said, you know, if you're working with the Environmental Protection Agency or NASA or the NIH or the Department of Defense, you know, as the public, you look at it as the government. You want a similar experience and sort of like a cohesive experience. And that's really what we try to do is form this community around all of the professionals in this field. And Whitney, give us an example, say, of something that you've seen where a federally funded development occurred What does it take to get it out into the marketplace so that it's all legal and kosher? (laughs) It takes a lot of hard work from our tech transfer professionals and a lot of dedication from the scientists that are at the labs uh, all the way to the companies. I'll give you a couple of examples. Technology is transferred from health and human services that many people are aware of. For example, Gardasil, the HPV vaccine that almost all of your kids at age 11 get these days. So that was the result of technology transferred from the federal labs into companies in the marketplace. 
Another great example for third world countries, uh, for example, Menafravac, that was an FDA technology where it involved partnerships as well as licensing to get that. And now I think um, there have been millions that have been vaccinated as a result of that great therapy. And what's the essential process? What do people that do this for a living technology transfer for their agencies? Give us the skeleton view anyway of the steps involved. Yeah, absolutely. So it all starts with us protecting our intellectual property, and we do that through patenting in most cases. And so we'll start there. And usually the technology is developed in those early years through the scientists at the individual agencies. Uh, Then we do a little bit of market outreach and we try and find a partner, the right partner to take the technology to the market. Uh, Once we find that partner, we'll execute a licensing agreement. We may also do a collaboration so that the scientists can work with the company while they do that early stage development. And then Once that early stage development is done, we release the reins and let the company take it from there. We are speaking with Whitney Hastings. She is the chair of the Federal Lab Consortium and with Paul Zielinski, the executive director. And just to be clear, then, this is work that had to be done by government scientists. That is to say, not work done under contract, say, under a CRADA, where the company develops this technology in the first place. Yeah, it usually starts with the federal scientists coming up with the original idea. There are cases where we do have create a partnership uh, between a company and that federal scientist and new innovations, new intellectual property is developed that might be co-owned, for example. But yeah, the original nugget or first step is the idea and the innovation from the federal scientists. And Paul, what have you noticed over the years in the motivation end of this? I mean, companies want to license technology because they feel they can sell it and make some money. The federal scientists may have developed it out of the goodness of her or his own heart, but yet might feel, well, golly, maybe I should benefit from this a little bit more than just my federal salary and, and the button I get you know, for having transferred something out. I think one of the important things, though, is that actually the work that's done is very mission-oriented at the laboratories. I mean, they're trying to accomplish what they're assigned to do. Then you get these great inventions. Well, you know, you don't accomplish the mission just by having the idea. You accomplish the mission by putting that into action. That's where these partnerships come in, and that's where this transfer comes in. Because all of a sudden, this is something that you can do. You can actually, if you're the Department of Defense, you might buy it, but you have to have somebody produce it. So these things have to exist. That's the key. So the scientists, you know, it's a great idea. We'll transfer it to somebody they can make and sell that product. That's the accomplishment of the mission, actually. And in fact, yes, there is some level of any royalties that is shared with the inventors. It's not huge amounts, but it is, you know, it's a pretty good incentive uh, in order to get them to really participate in the process, identify inventions, and actually, you know, then help us get it to the marketplace. So the federal scientists can share a little bit in it in what ensues after the transfer. Yeah, there's a percentage that's actually in the law that goes to the uh, scientists as the inventor of the for any of the royalties that the government takes in. Now, you have to understand, it's not huge amounts of royalties that we take in in all cases. Uh, in a few cases, Whitney mentioned, like, for example, a vaccine. Yeah, those are some pretty substantial royalties. That's a lot larger amount of money. But in a lot of cases, it may not be huge amounts of money that comes in. You know, it might actually be a relatively small invention or, you know, a small royalty stream. But it's an important invention nonetheless. Sure. So, um, you know, the amount of money transferred. The idea of the license, though, is sort of like, a, you know, a deed. You can get the company can gather investment itself. 
Sure. Well, as one of my professors used to say, that small royalty might be better than the jab in the eye with a sharp object. So (laughs) (laughs) on that end. And how has this whole process changed over the years? What are some of the big learnings that have come through the FLC in 50 years of doing technology transfer? But when you look at it, really, I mean, a lot of this even goes back to, you know, World War II and before. But, you know, really what you get down to is you've got this huge capability of research. How do you not just use it to win the war, but win the peace, as it was put? So, you know, you've got that. And then so you get a group of folks from the Department of Defense that form this defense laboratory consortium. It's like, hey, we're all doing the same thing. Can we work together, do the same stuff? So that happened in the early 70s. By the time you get to 1974, our 50 year anniversary, they said, you know what, let's let the other federal agencies into this consortium as well. You get the Federal Laboratory Consortium. So in 1980, you have two huge pieces of legislation. You get a thing called the Stevenson Weidler Act that says, look, you, tech transfer is a mission. This is actually part of your mission as a federal agency and as a federal laboratory. So to establish that, you got a thing called the Bayh-Dole Act that works with okay, let's recognize that there are intellectual property and that the world deals in intellectual property. So it established how we work with that. Then you fast forward to 1986, two things happen. We mentioned CRADAs earlier, Cooperative Research and Development Agreements, public-private partnerships. So that's authorized in 86, as well as actually putting it into law, this thing of Federal Laboratory Consortium. That was an idea. It was people working together out of the goodness of their heart. Now it was suddenly required in 1986. So that's some of the huge milestones that had happened in terms of getting to where we are today. And Whitney, do you find that the existence of the consortium can also help agencies avoid duplicative types of research if everyone knows what people are up to? Oh, absolutely. We actually have collaborations amongst the different agencies on a regular basis. At the national meeting, I mentioned the award ceremony that we'll have where we're going to talk about the past 50 years. One of our awards that we give is interagency partnership, where we're partnering together to accomplish something that has a similar mission or we have a similar goal. So we're always trying to work together. I would say one of my favorite things about being part of the FLC is learning from fellow tech transfer managers. For I can give you a a concrete example where my agency didn't have as much software. Talk about one of the innovative changes over the past 50 years, how software has really taken off in artificial intelligence. And so, you know, some of the other agencies like the NSA and NASA, they were experts in transferring software out to the marketplace. And so for us in health and human services, we didn't deal with it very much. But now, as you notice, there's tons of software as medical devices. So as a result of that, You know, I learned from my tech transfer colleagues what's the best practice in transferring that to companies, to the public, open source software type technology. So, so yeah, we're learning from each other all the time. That's an important point then. There's no real boilerplate process for all of technology transfer. Software or an artificial intelligence application is one thing, but if you develop a new metal alloy, transferring that's a whole different process or maybe the same process, but a different set of parameters. Yeah. Another example is 3D printing. New innovation. Now we can 3D print cells. It's amazing. All right. And I guess my final question is, well, I'll make an analogy. Rulemaking by federal agencies. That's what hundreds of agencies also do. And the federal rulemaking process 
cumbersome as it might seem, is actually a model for many other nations. And scientists such as yourself, uh, Dr. Hastings, do interact with colleagues internationally. What's the international view of the FLC? And do you find the United States is a model in the technology transfer area as well? I'd say we're a pretty good model. We were established early on compared to some of the other countries. And so we've had some ambassadors come and visit us here at FLC to learn a little bit more about how we do tech transfers, some of the legislation and legal requirements. We are the Federal Laboratory Consortium for the U.S. And so our labs are comprised of the 300 plus federal laboratories here. And those are our members and constituents that we serve. But we're always happy to be a role model to others and bring others in and feel free to uh, learn from what we've done in the past. All right, Paul, any final comments as the 50th year dawns here? Well, we're very excited about this last 50 years and very excited about moving forward in the future. As Whitney said, we've got a big event coming up with our national meeting, so we're looking forward to inviting people in. It's all about the networking, and that's really part of the tech transfer. Paul Zielinski is Executive Director of the Federal Laboratory Consortium. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. And Dr. Whitney Hastings is the Consortium Chair working out of the National Cancer Institute. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Happy to be here. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Transfer the Federal Drive to your mobile device. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. 
excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency 
And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, 
having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.